I'm actually signing for NFTO next year, which is a British team. So uh, it'll be a great atmosphere and uh, I'm really looking forward to new opportunities. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo-ho! Welcome to episode 127 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's looking forward to new opportunities outside of the Pro Tour. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash period and we would normally start with a review but I don't know whether people aren't reviewing or there is some bug in the system because I can't find any new ones so if you do like the show I would love a review on the iTunes or Stitcher because five stars makes me go Thank you very much. Now, let's get to the performance probe this week. And probe number one, effects of low and high cadence interval training on power output in flat and uphill cycling time trials. A pretty cool and very appropriate study looking at the effect of doing low cadence intervals at 60 RPMs uphill or high cadence intervals at 100 RPMs on level ground. And the effectiveness of these intervals is tested through a 20-minute uphill time trial and a flat time trial. So 18 male cyclists were randomly assigned to a low cadence 60 RPM uphill group and a high cadence 100 RPM level ground group and there was also a control group. The interval training comprised of two training sessions per week over four weeks which they consisted of six bouts of five minutes at the power output corresponding to the respiratory compensation point, the RCP. But what the hell is the RCP? It is also called the second ventilatory threshold, or VT2. And after those two terms, it sounds more confusing than it really is because it is also referred to as the anaerobic threshold, or of course, the lactic threshold, which, as a quick reminder... While the power output at lactate threshold is a little bit lower than FTP, you can do a quick estimate of the power they would have used for these intervals if you think about your FTP. So let's just use FTP as an example. So the subjects did 30 minutes at their FTP per week for four weeks, either uphill at 60 RPMs or on the flat at 100 RPMs. And the control group did no interval training at all. So what were the results? There was significant interactions between group and uphill and flat time trials pre versus post training on power output. So the low cadence group increased power output during both the uphill time trial, 4.4 watts plus or minus 5.3% and flat time trials. 1.5 watts 
plus or minus 4.5%. The high cadence group decreased power output during the Hill time trial, minus 1.3 watts, plus or minus 3.6%, but they increased output during the flat time trial, 2.6 watts, plus or minus 6%. The control group increased power output during the uphill time trial at 4 watts, plus or minus 4.6%, but decreased power output during the flat time trial, minus 3.5 watts, plus or minus 5.4%. So these findings suggest that higher forces during the low cadence intervals are potentially beneficial to improve performance. All right, so there was a performance benefit to doing uphill at low cadence. But here's what sticks out for me. The hill intervals at 60 RPMs improved power output for the uphill time trial, but only by 0.4 of a watt over the control group, which did no intervals at all. And the flat interval training decreased power output on the uphill time trial by minus 5.7 watts, which is the biggest gap out of the entire study, compared to the low cadence group's increase. But the increase on the flat time trial was only 1.1 watts over the low cadence group. So you are in greater danger of not gaining adaptions on hills and flats if you don't do hill repeats more so than if you just train on the flat. So definitely keep doing hill climbing and strengthies. Probe number two Winter Training in Ghent. It's a quick video about the Omega Quickstep Riders, as they were known at the time of this video, and how they train over winter. And this is more about really early season training, like the first month on the bike. And we are talking about base and strength training, not so much riding miles, but all the other things that you would be doing, and I'm definitely sure they're getting out in the cold in Belgium and riding base miles as well. They work on their core, and then they move to strength. There's nothing specific given in the example, but there is definitely some shocking squat technique. Fitness-wise, they train on the track, which would be more about efficiency at high cadence rather than speed because they're using track bikes, which are, of course, fixed-gear bikes, and you have no option but to turn the pedals over quickly. So these two types of training are actually done together over this period and mostly the on the bike work is done before the off the bike work and this is carried out throughout the off season. Sometimes they switch it around but the majority of work on bike and then off bike. There really isn't anything groundbreaking here but definitely if you have an indoor velodrome near you in winter getting on a track bike could be a good way of getting started with your efficiency work. Alrighty, let's get to the nuts and bolts and periodization. Are you doing it right? Not necessarily a step-by-step process that I have here for putting down periodization. I think that's kind of done to death. This is more taking a step back and looking at the overall framework that works into periodization and why it is in the order that it is. The high intensity training versus base miles debate is something that we have touched on before and it definitely is a fascinating one I am firmly on the side of base training. I came across an article which defends base training as well, so it backs up my theory. But this article is written by Alan Cousins, the triathlon coach. It's called Periodization, Why We Don't Put the Cart Before the Horse. Cousins is also 
in support of base training for endurance athletes. He covers some key concepts in this article that are worthy of a little further explanation. But first, some context, because by this time of year, and depending on when your A event is, you're definitely going to be somewhere between base and build, or if you want to look at it in a different way, general prep or specific prep. So rather than trying to hold on to your fitness by doing a lot of high-intensity work during your base period, I found that the only way to sustain a year's worth of training is to build towards an event from general to specific training in every single sense. So this follows the same thinking that Cousins introduces in a number of his well-written articles, and some of which are dedicated to the idea of maximal athletic development. And periodization is an important part of this. And today I'm going to go through, along with the help of Alan Cousins' writing, and try and explain why it's so important. But building up to an event, I will use shorter efforts to sharpen an athlete. And over a short period of time, these high-intensity efforts will help improve certain markers of performance well beyond the capability of base training. And it all relates to peaking and tapering, which I did touch on not too long ago in episode 123. But On the flip side of this is the sacrifice that you make to the areas that you aren't training, such as endurance, and the hard-fought endurance that you slave away for in your base period. So you definitely have to think twice about giving this away when you schedule in that hit block. In fact, when you are scheduling your training season, you most likely follow a set sequence. It's this sequencing of various types of training in traditional periodization that can't be argued with. And this brings us to the first key point of today's episode because it's the optimal sequencing ties in the physiological metric of the time course of training adaptions. And explained another way via the world-renowned exercise physiologist Stephen Seeler, who calls them waves of change. His waves of change are the VO2 max, which improves quickly and plateaus quickly after the onset of training in terms of months. There's threshold, which improves at a moderate rate and plateaus after a moderate period of time. We're talking years and economy. This improves slowly, but can increase almost indefinitely and it is potentially decades that you can keep improving this. These three differences in the time course of training adaptions are important to understand for a few reasons. Firstly, in relation to your maximal athletic development, as we are talking years in the case of threshold and economy. And secondly, in relation to your training year, because the flip side of these differences is the time course of training adaptions is in the rate of which these capacities detrain. I have covered detraining in the past, but it is really interesting to think about them in terms of periodization because as an example, like we discussed, VO2 max is lost quickly in the absence of specific training. Threshold is lost a little more slowly. And finally, aerobic economy is a persistent adaption with elevated economy numbers seen in former athletes after several years removed from the sport. When looking at this over a shorter period of time, such as a season, we can start to get a feel of why the order of training is important. And the example Cousin uses is for VO2 max, saying that if VO2 max is important to your event and we know it is lost quickly, 
Basically, it would make sense to place it closer to the event. Whereas, he says, on the other extreme, given that economy is such a persistent quality, we can afford to place it a good ways from the target event, knowing that at the slow rate at which it erodes, some will still be persistent when we arrive at our target event, explaining the role of skills-based training done early on in the season and why it is still valuable to do that. And you can drop it at a certain point, but you are still getting the benefits from it. This, by the way, does also work with periodizing strength training. I'm not going to touch on that, but it's good to keep that in mind if you're planning that side of your training as well. So working with the typical rates that detraining occurs, it becomes quite clear when you should start training for each specific adaption. Cousins calls this the concept of influence curves, curves which show the peak time at which a given type of training will have the most direct benefit to competition performance. This line of thinking uses training not only in relation to specificity, but also the timing of your event. And Cousins uses Bannister's 1986 paper to secure this point. You may know the name or you may not know it. You may just know that there was a slight contribution that Bannister put forward to help you have a performance management chart. Regardless of how well you know Bannister, This was a breakthrough study that sought to mathematically model the load performance relationship and the findings showed that the contribution that load makes to performance varies with the timing of the load with respect to the key event. Cousins puts it better when he says that modeling performance has shown that there is a critical period where it is optimal to really lay down the big load blocks and there is a quantified difference to be had by placing a training camp four months versus four weeks before your goal event. The skinny to come out of this idea for our purposes today is the importance of the period between three and 12 weeks prior to your event. This critical period is when training load has the greatest effect on performance for most athletes. Adding to this is the extra importance of weeks seven to three. This is when a big performance jump can be exploited with significant loading in this block, either a training camp or a couple of big weekends or however you want to jam in that extra load. So if the timing of the load is important, so is the composition of the load, which takes us back to influence curves. And this is where the rubber really hits the road for traditional periodization. Cousins uses curves based on the actual percentage rates of detraining over time for the free physiological qualities from a number of detraining studies. He put together a chart which breaks down the timing based on each type of adaption. And starting with the sharpening training, the stuff just before your event, the type of training designed to elicit the maximal changes in VO2 max has the most positive impact is performed best at around two to 10 weeks before your A event. Threshold training tends to have the greatest positive impact four to 16 weeks before the target event and training designed to improve aerobic economy can be done at any time before that. Definitely these timeframes are similar to what any linearly 
inclined endurance coach has been already doing. But as Cousin puts it, it does show that the sequencing of the linear periodization model according to the time course of training adaptions shouldn't be messed with. And this really clarifies the role of periodization and how to break that down further into when to load up your training and when to start your events required specificity training. It all helps show you are wasting your time doing certain types of training and training loads at certain times of the year. It's definitely something to think about as we move into this season. And if you are in weeks 10 to 2 out from your A event, it's time to get specific. And if you are between week 7 and 3, it's time to boost your training load. Now let's get to the tech hacks and products section. And this week it's a product by a company called Healby and the name is the Gobi. It's another fitness tracker, and yes, fitness trackers are all the rage with Joe Public at the moment, but most of them fail for serious use. So when I look at any new products in the consumer space, I normally write them off, not instantly, but after I've read about them. Something that caught my eye with this fitness tracker, though, is a unique feature for tracking calories. And we all know weight is a favorite topic of any serious cyclist. So anything that makes the process of monitoring calories easier is a win. And this activity tracker, the Gobi, as in Go be the best you can be has all the activity tracker standards with the addition of its special calorie tracking innovation where it removes the need for any manual tracking of calories. Amaze balls. So how is the wristband supposed to have achieved this? Electrical current. The sensor involved uses a technique called bioimpedance, which involves passing an imperceptible electrical current through the body to measure its resistance to the effect. He'll be suggest that it is the first to have developed an algorithm that can turn the bioimpedance reading into a calorie count. And this is the explanation from the company's founder. When you eat food, you have proteins, carbs, and fats. Carbs from the meal convert to glucose and the glucose goes to the cells. When glucose goes into the cells, water goes out. That means the water balance changes. The bioimpedance sensor used measures this water flow in and out. And knowing this, we can build a glucose curve and calculate the carbs. He adds that since the amount of fat and protein eaten influences the shape of the glucose curve by flattening it, his software can deduce all three nutritional elements and go on to deliver a calorie intake estimate. So what's my recommendation? Honestly, I can't strictly recommend the Gobi for a couple of reasons. The first being the claims of the technology that are yet to be completely substantiated. There is some controversy surrounding this product, and once this is on its way to being reversed, then I can't see why I wouldn't get behind it. There's a great thread on Reddit of all places running through the technology used The TLDR conclusion I have is that there may be some truth to this claim, but it's not a foolproof measurement because there is an algorithm involved rather than tracking exactly what is going on. The second problem that I see is linked to the first, and it is the unknown brand. While the big boys don't always get it right, at least you have a better chance of getting a 
qualified technology delivered in a reliable package and with reasonable, reasonable customer service. This may not apply to the makers of the Gobi, but it is a consideration for me when I'm looking to buy the first product from an unknown company and for 300 bucks US. They're definitely charging a premium for this algorithm, and if it's found to be reasonable, I really won't have a problem with it because it is kind of groundbreaking. That's why it's got so much press. But this time around, I'm definitely going to wait and see what the first users say and keep an eye out for more validation before I ever think about committing to buying the Gobi. And now that quote from the top of the show, it is Steele Von Hoff. Recently, he was turfed by Garmin to set up with a UK team and basically being a free agent for anyone that will have him over the Australian summer. It really shows the highs and lows of the sport because he was plucked from a domestic Australian team only two or three years ago. And now he is going to be spending a miserable summer in the UK only joking. He's going to be in the UK racing instead of the Pro Tour, so he's got to be disappointed with the step down, which raises another interesting part of pro cycling for me, because another aspect of pro cycling is the rules you have to follow in a team. It seems that it's firstly about landing that deal, but it's also, once you have that deal, staying in favor with the man. And there are some special rules highlighted by Lee Rogers in an article called A Glamorous Life. It's on Pez Cycling News, and it goes through the oddities in contracts and teams from compulsory smiling to not being allowed to hand other teams biddens in races or even congratulate them while the cameras are rolling at the finish line. It's a good insight into the secret world of pro cycling. I'll link to it in the show notes so you can check that out. And that's it. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash period to find any links used in this week's episode. From there, you can click on any coaching link on the site or visit semiprocycling.com forward slash coaching for more information on our coaching packages. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into.